0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host David Stein. Today's episode 381. It's titled Investing in Business Development Companies and Other Niche Investments that Trade on Stock Exchanges. Back when I was an institutional investment advisor, we would conduct due diligence on stock managers, bond managers, hedge funds, and these would often involve visiting on-site to these asset management firms. We would meet the people, we would take a tour of the office, look at desks, some messier than others. We would also visit the trading floor. One of the things I noticed over the years as I made these on-site visits is the trading floor kept getting more and more cables, more electronics, because previously a trader at a Asset management firm would would call up the trading desk at one of the brokers that they worked with. But more and more trading has moved away from traditional stock exchanges, where the trade hits the floor of the New York Stock Exchange. The order and their specialist on the floor coordinate the buying and selling of that underlying security. Now, 40% of trades occur off-exchange many of them using alternative trading systems that aren't connected to a stock market at all. These trading systems match buyers and sellers electronically. Some even use artificial intelligence. Many trades occur within the broker itself, whereas if a brokerage firm has a buyer and seller among its own clients, it might actually match those trades. It's called the internalization of order flow. Many big institutional investors, they don't want others to know about their trades, particularly if they're trading large blocks of stocks, because others could, could front-run those trades. In fact, the SEC, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, and the Justice Department are investigating whether some investment banks, such as Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, have been letting some of their top hedge fund clients know about block trades. Some of these big investors, if they have a large block of stock, they might go to this investment bank who will purchase the shares and then will try to resell them to other investors. Ultimately, institutional investors don't want others to know about their trades because it could impact the price. There could be a market impact. And so there is an element of secrecy to trading. And so much of trading in securities has moved off exchange. And as I said, about 40% of trades now are off exchange. Even on exchange, there are many, many different venues for trading stocks and other securities. That competition has led to lower commissions, especially for us retail investors. We can trade many securities for free. Now, institutions continue to pay commissions. And the reason why is because they get additional research and other services. So if I'm an endowment or on the board of an endowment and we hire a long-only stock manager who is trading securities, those stocks still might trade at a penny or two a share. And the asset management firm that initiated the trade is getting research from different brokerages and other sources for compensation for paying those trading costs. A survey by Bloomberg found that the average buy-side firm, so a firm that is managing assets for clients, has relationships with 23 to 33 different brokerage firms, mainly so they they can get diverse research ideas, and often because they can get access to new stock offerings, initial public offerings. These institutional investors also will have relationships with algorithmic trading platforms, typically between 9 to 11 relationships, to be able to use the algorithms that those firms have developed to help these asset management firms in managing assets. The largest stock exchange is the New York Stock Exchange. It was formed in 1792 when 24 brokers and merchants got together and signed an agreement called the Buttonwood Agreement in which they would work with each other in trading securities. Now, this was 19 years after the first stock exchange was established in London. The Buttonwood Agreement was named after the Buttonwood tree, which was the tree that these brokers would meet under. That struck me as odd. I hadn't heard of a Buttonwood tree. I have no idea how it survived in New York because it's a Zone 10 to 11 tree native to Florida, the Caribbean, and South America. I suspect the tree has died. Apparently, there still is a buttonwood tree in front of the New York Stock Exchange that must perhaps be replanted every few years. The New York Stock Exchange was an all-male organization for decades. It was only in 1967 when a female trader, Muriel Seibert, was allowed to participate in trading. The New York Stock Exchange is called a stock exchange. And most of the securities that trade on the exchange, and and oftentimes as a trader, you can have your trade go to the trading floor or you can send it through an electronic platform. So the New York Stock Exchange is, is a hybrid market. So the stock might be listed on the NYSC, but it actually in many cases, doesn't actually trade on the floor. It will trade electronically on the NYSE's electronic platform, or it could trade on some other alternative trading platform. What is interesting about the NYSE and other older stock exchanges is there are many, many other securities besides stocks that trade on those exchanges. Those are some of the securities we're going to talk about, and we have talked about many of them in earlier episodes, but I thought it would be interesting to rank the different securities that trade on the NYSE and other traditional stock exchanges by size. There are 10 of them. I probably have missed one or two security types. Now, they're divided into direct investments and indirect investments. There's a free investment guide of money for the rest of us on investment vehicles. And we talk about, in that guide, direct investments, which are specific asset class holdings that generate an investment return. A direct investment would be a stock, a bond. It could be rental real estate. Direct investments don't have professional portfolio managers selecting the investments for you as the investor. Indirect investments do. Indirect investments include exchange-traded funds, real estate investment trust, and closed-end funds. Now, this list of different securities, some of which are direct investments, others indirect investments, many of them, there is a free investment guide on the Money for the Rest of Us website on that particular security. I've also covered them in various podcasts. There's also a topic index on the Money for the Rest of Us website that lists out all the topics we've covered on the show as well as on plus episodes. If I don't cover something in a free investment guide or on the free podcast, generally I've covered it either in a video lesson on Money for the Rest of Us Plus or one of the plus episodes. Those plus episodes tend to be a little more specific than what's available on the free podcast. The total value of securities listed on the New York Stock Exchange, the largest exchange in the world, is $27. Point seven trillion trillion. That's followed by NASDAQ, which has $25 trillion. The Shanghai Stock Exchange has $8 trillion of securities. Euronext, based in Europe, $7 trillion. The Japan Exchange Group, $6.5 trillion. And then additional exchanges with significant assets is the Shenzhen Stock Exchange, the Hong Kong Exchange the LSE Group, London Stock Exchange Group, based in UK, the National Stock Exchange of India, and the TMX Group of Canada. In thinking about the New York Stock Exchange, which is the biggest, the most common security traded there, as we would expect, are common stocks. Direct investments that represent an ownership in a company and entitles the holder to a share of the profits. Total value By market capitalization, or size, which is the number of shares outstanding times the price for common stocks, is $53 trillion, the biggest, most common asset that trades on stock exchanges. The second biggest, and this surprised me, are American Depository Receipts, or ADRs. They comprise about $8 trillion. And ADRs is a security that represents shares in a non-U.S. company. And those shares are held in trust at a U.S. depository bank. Often that bank is, is outside of the U.S. And so it's a way for U.S. investors to invest in non-U.S. companies that are publicly traded, but to do so on a U.S. stock exchange. The first ADR was created in 1927 to allow U.S. investors to invest in shares of a British department store. Now there are more than 1,400 ADRs representing Over 70 different countries. The second largest segment of securities that trade on U.S. stock exchanges. The third largest is an indirect investment vehicle, exchange-traded funds. $7 trillion. ETFs are marketable securities that track a specific index or segment of the capital markets. Most ETFs are still passive, but we're seeing more actively managed ETFs become available. The next category by size are equity real estate investment trust. One and a half trillion dollars of equity REITs trade on U.S. stock exchanges. Equity REITs are also indirect investment vehicles. They own and operate income producing commercial real estate such as office buildings, shopping centers, apartments, and many other property types. The next category of investment is preferred stocks. They make up about $400 billion in terms of total market size. Preferred stocks are an income-oriented asset class. They're direct investments, and they're hybrid securities. They have elements of stocks and bonds. A bond-like characteristic is they have a specified dividend rate that they pay, so there's a yield, but Many preferred stocks don't mature. Some are callable, but it's not a bond. It is a form of equity. In fact, dividends for preferred stocks have to be paid prior to dividends for common stocks. Preferred stocks are more senior in the capital structure for companies than common stock. A next type of security by size that trades on stock exchanges are closed-end funds. About $300 billion of closed-end funds trade in the U.S. A closed-end fund is a type of mutual fund where investors pool their money. There's a professional money management team that oversees the portfolio, selects the underlying securities, be it stocks, bonds, preferred stocks. So this is an indirect investment vehicle. They're interesting compared to ETFs in that there's only a certain number of shares available for closed-end funds. There isn't a mechanism like you see with ETFs. As demand increases, the ETF sponsor can create more shares. A closed-end fund has to do another public stock offering to raise more shares. Sometimes they'll do a rights offering, but it's a more formal process. Whereas with an ETF, it happens on a daily basis. As a result, closed-end funds can sell at big discounts or premiums to the net asset value. It's one of the fascinating areas to invest. In fact, I'm working on a course that goes into more detail for how to invest in closed-end funds. The next category of securities that's available on a stock exchange but isn't necessarily a stock are master limited partnerships. These are generally energy infrastructure investments that get special tax treatment by paying out 90% of its cash flow earnings to shareholders. And they invest in natural resources primarily, about $200 billion in market cap. But there's only 28 or so available in the U.S. The next category then is exchange-traded notes, $136 billion. An exchange-traded note is an unsecured debt security whose performance is tied to some financial index. It is an indirect investment vehicle, and it is a, a topic that we've covered in an earlier podcast episode. Next, and a little out of order, this should have been in front of exchange trade notes, $200 billion worth, approximately, although it was a challenging to figure out exactly how much was available. These are SPACs, special purpose acquisition companies. They're non operating publicly listed companies whose purpose is to identify and purchase a private company, allowing the acquisition target to have publicly listed stock. In 2021, there were 613 newly formed SPACs that raised about $162 billion of capital. There was also capital raised in 2020, 2019, but SPACs typically have two years to identify and find a purchase candidate. And so we always have SPACs that find an acquisition target, they combine it, and then there's a newly listed company and the security then is no longer a SPAC. And so you have new SPACs being issued, SPACs that are de-SPACing once they either shut down or do a business combination. And so it's challenging to figure out what is the total value of SPACs outstanding. SPACs are also known as blank check companies, and there's a podcast episode and a free investment guide on SPACs. I've owned them, but I don't own any currently because they're not a very good investment in my opinion. They generally have underperformed. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Terms and conditions apply. Sometimes it's just nice to sit back, relax, maybe even take a nap. That's not what you want your money to be doing. You want it to be working hard for you, earning interest, generating returns. That's where the Betterment Automated Investing and Savings app can help. Betterment's technology gives you advanced tools that are built to help you maximize returns. They have diversified portfolios of low-cost ETFs that have been constructed by experts, High-yield cash accounts, where your money can earn 11 times the national average. And automated investing technology, like automated rebalancing. These tools can help you reach your savings and investing goals. Betterment is a fiduciary. That means it's their job to act in your best interest. They will never recommend an investment or give you guidance unless they believe it will help you reach your financial goals. So visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about the high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, performance not guaranteed. Cash reserves offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. The next security type, and we're going to spend much more time on this, is business development companies. There's about $53 billion outstanding, so much, much smaller. When you compare even SPACs, which are niche, $200 billion. MLPs of $200 billion, closed-end funds over $300 billion, $400 billion in preferred stocks, trillion and a half in equity REITs, $7 trillion in exchange-traded funds, $8 trillion in ADRs, and $53 trillion in stocks. Way down at the bottom, we have BDCs with only $50 billion. And even smaller than that, more niche is mortgage REITs. Mortgage Real Estate Investment Trust, sometimes called MREITs, only $4 billion. There's 34 MREITs outstanding. These are indirect investment vehicles that invest in residential and commercial mortgages, primarily using mortgage-backed securities. There's an investment guide on the website on investing in mortgage REITs. There isn't, at least of, of yet, an investment guide on business development companies. As I mentioned, there's 53 billion outstanding and there's 40 to 50 BDCs BDCs are a special type of closed-end investment company that directly fund businesses that have revenues between 10 million and a billion dollars these are relatively new BDCs were created through the Small Business Investment Incentive Act and the idea was to flow capital to be invested in small to mid-sized private businesses they didn't really take off until the early 2000s. Many of these companies are so small that they're not able to get access to the syndicated loan market. In other words, bank loans that, that are then sold into the marketplace. BDCs will often lend directly then to these companies that aren't able to get access to the syndicated loan market. BDCs have a great deal of flexibility with how they structure that the debt to these companies, but They provide some additional help. They're somewhat of a hybrid of a traditional bank and a private equity fund because while they might extend credit, they can also provide some equity, but they also provide guidance and counsel about management operations. So they're consulting to these companies in addition to lending to them. And as a result, BDCs, because they're offering more than just lending, can charge a premium on their debt securities compared to a bank. And oftentimes that debt is a 4 to 5% premium to the company. BDCs can also borrow money. They can raise $2 of debt for every dollar of equity. And then that those funds are then invested or lent to the portfolio companies. That leverage changed in 2018. It was $1 of debt for every dollar of equity. Now it's $2 of debt. Many BDCs are regulated as investment companies, or RICs. And so they pay out 90% of their gross income, or it needs to be derived, 90% of the gross income needs to come from dividends and in interest, as well as gains from the sale of stock or securities. And then that income is then passed on to the shareholders of the BDC. There's also some diversification characteristics for the BDC. They can't invest more than 5% of their assets in any single security, and not more than 10% of the outstanding voting securities of any issuer. And so the BDCs will have a portfolio of companies that it has lent to and it is providing assistance on. Now, these, these are risky companies. Some are financially distressed. Others are, they're brand new. They're small to midsize. And as a result, when you think about BDCs, when there's a recession, they tend to sell off fairly significantly. BDCs fell 52% in 2008 and they declined over 40% in 2020 yet because these are leveraged bdcs and they're lending at high interest rates often get some equity participation returns have been good longer term even despite these drawdowns if we look at the s&p bdc total return index its 10 year annualized return is 9.1% It's returned 7.7% annualized for the five-year. BDCs are up 20% in the past year. And the reason being because there was a significant drawdown in 2020 as the pandemic hit that hurt returns, but then we've seen the recovery. But longer term, even though BDCs are investing in riskier companies, startups like a private equity-type firm, small to middle-sized companies, they have generated solid returns. Because this is a fairly niche area, there aren't many ways to invest in them. I found one ETF that looked the most attractive, the largest ETF. It's the Eck BDC Income ETF, ticker is B-I-Z-D. It has $650 million in assets. The next Exchange-traded products in this space had less than $50 million in assets. So this has been around since 2013, around a long time. It's concentrated in 25 BDCs. It's passively managed. It's, it's seeking to match the performance of the MVIS, U.S. Business Development Companies Index. This particular ETF, BIZD, has an attractive SEC yield, so the yield after backing out management expenses is 8%. Again, only 25 holdings, and its largest holdings, Aries Capital Corporation, makes up 14% of assets as of early April. But there are a number of underlying BDCs in there. What can be a little confusing with this ETF, if you look at the gross expense ratio, it's 10%. So the management fees is only 0.4%. But there are what are known as acquired fund fees of 9.7%. And that really arises from an SEC rule on investing in funds of funds. Because a business development company is a type of closed-end fund, the ETF is investing in this portfolio of these BDCs. And the rule states that if you do that, you have to show as the gross expense ratio, the fees of the BDCs. The BDCs themselves have expenses. Sometimes the BDC might be externally managed, and so they have a management fee. The BDC can also charge an incentive fee. Back in Plus Episode 228, we looked at the Oak Tree Strategic Income Fund. This BDC's ticker is OCSI. You look at that particular fund, which is managed by Oaktree, which is a very good firm. The fee structure has a 1% management fee. And then there's an incentive fee in which the, the fund's sponsors, once investors have earned 6%, 17.5% of ordinary income and 17.5% of capital gains goes to the manager. And so the expense ratios the total fees of BDCs can get quite high. Having said that, the SEC yield or the yield is after all those expenses and the yields are close to 8% and the annualized returns has been close to that. This particular ETF, the VanEck BDC income ETF has returned 8.6% annualized over the past five years. And going back to 2013, it's returned 7.6% annualized. And so it's done well, recognizing the risk there because you can get major sell-offs. But if you approach it in a diversified way, this is an example of an investment because it is such a small niche market that institutions can't invest in readily because they would impact the price. So we as individual investors can participate in investing in business development companies. The safest way to do that would be through an ETF like the VanEck BDC Income ETF. I saw that there was one exchange traded note that gives you one and a half times the return of a BDC index. I wouldn't recommend that because there's already leverage at the BDC level and then to lever that up again by one and a half times just isn't prudent. As they go through this list of all 10 securities that trade on U.S. stock exchanges. Turns out the only one that I haven't invested in is BDCs. I don't have a very good answer for that, other than it's a very small market. And even though I've already done two episodes on Money for the Rest of Us Plus on BDCs, I just have never invested in them. I'll probably change that because as long as recession risk is low... If one is comfortable with the potential maximum drawdown that you can see when a recession hits, this is an attractive way to generate some additional income with a yield of around 8% and an expected return in the 7 to 8% range. So those are business development companies and the other securities that trade on stock exchange. I hope you found the episode helpful. Thanks for listening. I'd like to help you become a better investor. Certainly the free podcast helps with that. But have you subscribed to my email newsletter, The Insider's Guide? It's where each week I share an essay on money, investing, and the economy to a list of thousands of email subscribers. I put a great deal of thought and time into that newsletter, and I would love for you to be able to read it and learn from it. You can sign up for The Insider's Guide newsletter at moneyfortherestofus.com. Another way I would love to help you become a better investor is by you becoming a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. This is the premier investment education platform that's been operating for over seven years. Plus Membership gives you the tools and resources you need to manage your investment portfolio. Not only do you get access to my more than two decades of investment experience, look at my portfolio trades, but Money for the Restless Plus has partnered with top-tier institutional research firms such as Ned Davis Research, Capital Economics, MSEI, and refinitive Data Stream. I curate the most important content and lessons to help you make better portfolio decisions. You also access a community of over a 1,000 members to get their insights. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is a bargain compared to a college credit or subscribing to an institutional research service that can cost upwards of $10,000 per year or even hiring a financial advisor. You can learn more about PLUS membership at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.